Next, Kinnah, page 248, Kinnah 21, Arzi Halavon on Adirei Torah, seated 11 on Masters of Torah. This, is, of course, is the Kinnah of the Ten Martyrs. It's horrific, horrific Kinnah. It's also a, uh, uplifting in a way. There's something uplifting about the way in which these great leaders heroically went to their, to their death, you know, loudly proclaiming Shema Yisrael. There's a lot to talk about in this kinah, but I want to focus on one element. Anyone here been to the first Holocaust Museum in Israel? It's, called, it's on Kibbutz Lachme, Lachmue Hagitut. I don't know if that right. The Kibbutz in northern Israel, I was there a couple years ago. The Kibbutz is um, a one kilometer from Akri, it's about nine kilometers from Nariya. And on it is, it was kibbutz for, uh, created by many survivors, and they, they made it what was the very first Holocaust Museum in 1949 already. 1949, they began, they broke ground in what became the first Holocaust Museum in the world. The museum is called the Ghetto Fighters Museum. The Ghetto Fighters Museum. So I went there a, a number of years ago, and what struck me was what was missing. And what was missing was there was one room dedicated to the camps. One room. Remember that? I think they had a massive, a massive replica. It was either Treblinka or Mudhausen. And that was it. The rest of the museum was dedicated to the resistance. The Warsaw Ghetto up- Uprising. Other various uprisings throughout Israel. And what struck me was there was an almost embarrassment on behalf of you know, the new Jew, the Zion, proud Zionist who can pick up arms and fight against the world. How could it be? How could it be that so many willingly, seemingly, went to their deaths? Like sheep to slaughter, a phrase we know from our liturgy. But the idea of like sheep to slaughter, how can it be that they went like sheep to slaughter? And therefore the museum seemed to do everything they could to avoid talking about the actual, the part that we know most about the camps, the deaths of six million, and rather focused on the heroism. In fact, one of the reasons why Yom HaShoah was so controversial in the beginning was because its initial name was Yom HaShoah, talking about the, the, the Holocaust, the Hagvura, and the remembrance of the strength, the fighting back. There was an element of this idea of we're going to focus more on the resistance, the partisans, the uprisings, and not on the actual death and destruction. And the reason from that was because there was an embarrassment. How could it be so many people went like sheep to a slaughter? In Out of the Depths of Lao's biography, Lao, we mentioned a few years ago, he's an amazing autobiography he wrote a couple years ago called Out of the Depths, Mimamakim. And he writes as follows. He said, when I was chief rabbi, I received a call from Dov Shalansky, then speaker of the Knesset. He was also a Holocaust survivor, a native of Shavli, Lithuania, who had been interned in the Dachau concentration camp, which was by the, the first concentration camp, first for political prisoners. He asked me to help him change the verses of a prayer memorializing the Holocaust victims. He explained that because I was the first chief rabbi to have experienced the Holocaust, I would be sure to understand his great distress about this prayer. He referred to the phrase, in memory of the martyrs of the Holocaust, who went like sheep to the slaughter. Shalansky was horrified at, at like sheep to a slaughter, and asked me to try to eliminate it. I agreed, agreed with him and, un, and fulfilled his request. My father, he writes, did not go like sheep to the slaughter. He and the Jews with him stood tall until the very last moments of their lives. They were proud of being Jews, and they made every effort not only to preserve the divine spark in every individual, but also to give it practical expression. There's this idea 
We think about like sheep to a slaughter. Jews went like sheep to slaughter. We think of heroism. What is heroism? We talk, we talk about this, I think, on Yom HaShoah for a few people who were there. There's heroism in the sense of, yes, an uprising. You know what do you have against the Nazi war machine, and you're going to do everything you, that you can. And almost analogous to what the, that the Kohanim did in the, base, in, in, in the times of the, the Chorban, three weeks of fighting, you find this months of fighting for the, in the, in the ghetto uprising. But there's another heroism. There's a heroism that emerges from a book like this. This book is called The Holocaust and Halacha. And it depicts two main Shilas and Shuvos, safe farm, that emerge from the Holocaust. They're really, they're, they're multiple. But two main ones are Shilas and Shuvos Mima Amakim, Out of the Depths by Rabbi Ephraim Oshri, where he deals with the most horrific questions. Questions when people came to him and said, I have to choose between two children. I have to choose between the most unimaginable choices. I have to, what do I do? Pesos coming, can I eat, can I not? Questions that we would never even begin to fathom. And people came to him to ask him these questions. The vice thereof, who wrote a tshuva, who wrote a tshuva as well, Rav, um, the vice thereof was, blanking on his name right now, Rav Mizel, Tvirish Mizels, also a child in tshuvas. And what emerged from his book is a different type of heroism. A heroism, a spiritual heroism. A heroism of people who went through everything and yet clung to with everything they had, every fiber of their being, or willing to ask questions. Willing to ask questions even in the depths of hell. You know, the Surah Aish, the Surah what's the Surah Aish? How the Aish? The remnant of the fire. Because he was also dealing with these questions. He was dealing with the questions of, even in 19, when, the, when the Nazis first banned Shrita in 38 or 39, well, what do we do now? How do we slaughter animals? All the way through the war. These horrific, horrific questions. There's a heroism. There's a heroism to the ability to cling on to faith, the spiritual heroism, despite the fact everything around you is falling apart. There's a heroism of Rabbi father who was able to take Kaddish in the cattle car, standing proud and saying, you can do what you want to my body, but I am going to stand and not let you take hold of my soul. The heroism of Viktor Frankl, Viktor Frankl, the great therapist, who said he's sitting there in the camp and he had this realization, they can do what they want to my body, they can imprison my body, but they're never going to have my mind. I ultimately can make decisions how I'm going to react to things. Which, which out of that was born his famous idea that's between the two stimuli, the way we respond to stimuli is how we take control of ourselves. There's a heroism to that. A heroism, it's not like sheep to slaughter, but proudly going like the Jews in the, in the third fort in Kovno, Rachan and Wasserman, who they were singing and saying the bracha, uh, ready to give up their lives. There's a heroism to that. And that's the same heroism which Rabbi Dr. Eliezer Berkovitz in his work, Faith After the Holocaust, which is a very interesting work where he tries to make sense of the Holocaust and the faith after the Holocaust and tries to give his version of why God can let this happen. And, you know, Rabbi, uh, this, a couple months ago, we lost, a couple weeks ago, we lost a great, a great hero of the Jewish people, Rabbi David uh, Weiss Halivni. Have you ever heard of David Weiss Halivni? Originally from Seget, David Weiss Halivni, Seget, I don't know, who else is from Seget famously? Eli Weissel. David Weiss Halivni was a child prodigy who learned with his grandfather, who knew, who mamish, he knew Shas, Balpeh, by heart. He went through the worst of the worst, went to the camps, he came to America, ultimately he settled in JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he, that's where his life works, essentially, where you can read, he has an autobiography called, um, called, by the, sword, by the book and the sword, I believe, by the book and the sword, or something along those lines, where he talks about what he went through. And one of the things he says in there, 
he has three things he doesn't like that people do at the Holocaust. So one of them is when they psychologize, I guess the word psychologize, if that's even a word, when they try to give psychological reasons for the survivors and try to say, now you survived this war, this is why you're like it. Like, you have no idea what I'm like. We're all different. Another one thing he says is, I don't like when people give reasons for the Holocaust. But I think we give a, pa- we give a pass to those who went through the Holocaust to give reasons for the Holocaust. I think I even said then, that's part of the, that's part of the, uh, of the story of the Holocaust, of, be- of bearing witness and telling, and telling over is people's experiences and how they related to it, both from a psychological perspective but also from a religious perspective. The way they grappled with it, everyone grappled with it somehow. The, the, the faith of survivors, as simple as it may seem, is also complex. And Professor Weiss lived, he was, no, you know, he, he was again, until his last day, he was literally sitting and learning. He said the one place he found comfort was sitting and learning, and it brought him back to the pre-war, learning with his grandfather. But, so Dr. Professor Berkowitz, Rabbi Dr. Eliezer Berkowitz, he has his book, Faith After the Holocaust. And in it, in this book, again, he has, he talks about why God can let it from a theological perspective, but he has an unbelievable, magnificent idea about what is heroism, what is Kiddush Hashem. And listen to what he says. He says, in order to understand this, let's see a Gemara about Rabbi Akiva in full. A few minutes ago, Earlier today we saw the Gemara of Akiva when Moshe Rabbeinu confronted Rabbi Akiva and said they're weighing his flesh in the marketplace. But what happened? Says the Gemara, this is in Brachas, and that's Tamach Aleph on the base. V'ahav des Hashem lokecha, Tanya. V'lazer Omer. The verse tells us you should love our God. In Nemer b'chol nafshcha, lama Nemer b'chol mo'adecha. It says love God with all your soul. Why does it say love God with all your might? V'im Nemer b'chol mo'adecha, it says love God with all your might. It seems superfluous to say... Why love God, love God with all your soul? It's the person whose body is more important to them than his money. One interpretation. Again, if you like your money more than your body, you still give your money up. Your body more your money, give your body. Fine. Rekiva Omar, this is Rekiva, again, the optimist. Why did the verse say, love God with all your soul? Even if they're willing to take your soul, they say, you know, bow down to an idol or we'll kill you, you give your life up. And says the Gemara, here's the story of Rekiva. The evil Roman Empire made a gezera decree, the Jewish people cannot teach Torah. So they made a decree, anyone caught teaching Torah is going to be killed. Papas ben Yehuda comes along and finds Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Akiva, excuse me, teaching Torah in public. Akiva, aren't you afraid? Don't you know what's going to happen to you? How can you teach Torah in public? He says, I'm going to give you an analogy. You know why I'm teaching Torah in public? A fox is walking on the riverbank. And the fox looks inside the water and sees the fish. They're scurrying around. You, know, you ever see fish in the water? They're always moving very, very quickly. What are, you, what are you running from, fish? You're in the water. Why are you running around? Sit still. Be calm. We're concerned. The, the, the fishermen are casting their nets in the water. They're throwing their fishing rods. They're sitting on the, for some reason, every single day, right here on Orchard Avenue with their fishing rod in the water. We don't want to get caught, so we're running around really, really quickly. So, Amr lahem, Ritzon kunsh talal levisha, v'nazar anig v'atem k'shem shenodir avosi em avosechem. Um, sorry. So he says to him as follows: I have an idea for you. 
if you're so concerned about the fisher's nets, why don't you come onto land? Right? Good idea, fish. Come onto land, avoid the fisher's nets, and I won't do anything to you. And the same way, the same way, the same way my ancestors resided with your ancestors on land once upon a time, so too now, all will be good and well. You can avoid the fisher's net. Come out of the water. I don't need to scurry around. So, so he says to him, The fish ate back to him, You fox, you're the one that says you're so intelligent, cunning, great, sure. You, you're, you're, you're an idiot. If in the place where we're supposed, where we can live, we have gills to breathe in the water. This is where we, we can live, and yet we're afraid for our lives. Allah has come come. Certainly, in the place where we're going to die, we can't breathe. We have to be afraid for our lives. The same way the fish said, a fish out of water can't live. The Torah, which we say every day, it is our life. Learning Torah is our life. It's what sustained us as a people. It's what sustained us as a people. For so many years, as the Kina tells us, that even when they come to destroy our bodies, how old folks, how old the letters fly to the sky, they're immortal. Think about that. The Torah has sustained us as a people. If that is what sustains the people and they're coming to kill us because of that, if we stop learning, if we no longer cling on to the Torah, Allah has come of the Tama. We're like a fish out of water. If the thing that's supposed to sustain us, yet we're afraid for our lives, certainly, if, the thing, if we're not keeping the thing that's supposed to sustain us, we have to be afraid for our lives. And I'll make two points on this. One is a broader point about the importance of Tama Torah. That that's what sustains us as a people. That's what, the reason why we were able to perpetuate our legacies. The why we as a Jewish people have lived for so long is because of the Torah. Because no matter what happened, we had the Torah. And I mentioned Rechon and Wasim a couple minutes ago. Rechon and Wasim, one of the great leaders of pre-war Europe. Rechon and Wasim, he had a yeshiva called Baranovich. Baranovich, almost every great rabbi who survived the war, who came to America, went to Israel, was a Talmud of Rechon because he was really the only Masifta, the only high school around. So everyone went through Baranovich. He was a fascinating figure, a very interesting figure. By the way, he, won, he went, came to America for a year to fundraise. By the time he got back to Europe, the, uh, Europe was in flames. He, went, he insisted on going back. He said, the captain goes down with the ship, essentially. I'm going back. They, they, they pleaded with him to stay in America. He went back. He was ultimately killed. That year in America, we're raising money. The, the money didn't end up working. Like, I mean, the, the Shiva fell apart. But that one year, he met some of the great, le- and great people, ended up being the leaders, the future leaders of the Jewish people, who started Lutz Yisrael, who started Torah Misora. So he, had a, he left an indelible impact on America as well. Rechonon Wasserman, he was killed. Third, I believe the third or seventh fort, fort in Kovno. But I tell you, just yesterday, I was learning the Kovach Shiurim of Rebchan Wasserman. I was learning the Shiurim that Rebchan Wasserman gave over in Baranovich. Because there's something immortal about the Torah. And the reason why we as a people go on is because of the Torah. But, Kiheim Chayyenu V'Orachimeni, we have to remember that. The best way that we can be sure to perpetuate our legacies is, or the legacies of Claudia Yisrael is through Talmud Torah. The other point I want to point out is what Russia Weiss said is that when it comes to people distracting us and saying, don't learn Torah, sometimes they use crazy arguments that make no sense, but they'll still say them either way. The, fish, the fox saying, come on to land, like what's going on here? That's another point. But either way, Rabbi Kiva says to Papa Ben Yudi, you know why I'm teaching Torah? You know why I'm risking my life to teach Torah? It's like if we'd be a fish out of water. Torah is our life. Came chayenu v'orachimenu. Omer lo, ha'yayom emu'otim, it wasn't just a, but a few days. Achit posted to Rabbi Kiva v'choshu v'tesurim. The Romans got a hold of what's going on. They came to Rabbi Akiva. They, they threw him into the base of Surim into jail. 
And for some other reason, not for learning Torah, but Pabbas ben Yehuda was also, he was caught, I don't know, cheating on taxes. They threw him into jail. He was sitting next to Rabbi Kiva in jail. He's seen it, right? And Papa says, you know what? We're both sitting, we both ultimately have the same, we, we end up in the same place in life. Everyone ends up in the same place in life. But Ashrecha that Rabbi Kiva ended up in this place because he was teaching Torah. Ashrecha that ultimately we all, we all know, no matter what you are in life, we end up in the same place. But Ashrecha to the person who taught and learned Torah his whole life. And he says, Woe unto me, Papas, who was seized because of idle matters, because I spent my whole life doing other things. And then the Gemara says as follows. Where is this? Bisha Shahutsi es Rebekiva Lahariga. It was a moment that came to take out Rebekiva to kill him. Zman Krishmahi. It was a time to say Krishma. It was a time to say Shema. But Yusorka as Besorab Marsiko Shalbarazal, they took these iron combs and they began to peel away at his skin. So what did he do? He said Shema. What do you do when, you're, when someone's about to die? You say Shema. Omlo Tamida Rabbeinu Ad Khan. So much so you're going to do this? Ad Khan, even now you're going to say Shema? How can you? Omlo Hem, he said to them, Kol Yomai. I used to style Pasik Zebachol Navshacha. All my life I read this verse, Bechol Navshacha, even if you give your life up. I feel no to us Navshu. Amarti, I said to myself, Mosayavali Avakimna. All my life I said, I hope I can do this. I hope I can live up to this. I hope. I hope I can live up to this. I don't know if I can. And now it's happening. Of course I can say Shema. Of course I can live up to. And I can say Shema in the Kabbalah of Mahasa Shemaim, except the yoke of heaven, even this moment of extreme, excruciating pain and torture. And then, he gets the word Shema Yisrael. And he said, a long Echad. Echad. He said, one, God is one, which is we mowed before. When we say God is one, we mean not just he's singular, but also that everything makes sense ultimately. That everything will be unified. That things that don't make any sense, a person, the greatest teacher, in Cloud and Shell's history, being killed one day, Echad, it's all going to make sense. Yotza Sabaskov Omra, Achad Nasho. He said Echad until he, he, that's when he died. So left, leaves him, and a voice emanates from heaven and says, Ashrech Rebekiva, Shiyotza Nishmas of Echad. How praiseworthy is Rebekiva that his voice left with Echad. And by the way, just an addendum. What do the angels in heaven say at this moment? Zut Torah v'zut Harasa. Another, another time, when the angels say, this is, your, this is the reward of the Torah, which God says to them, God says, uh, and there's no response actually. God doesn't say anything. Okay. So, this is the story of Rabbi Kiva. He gives his life up, says Shema, and dies. It's a heroism. A heroism time, at, at the time of death. Not a heroism of fighting back, but a heroism of willing to, a willing to hold on and cling to faith even at the end. However, Rabbi Berkovitz, Rabbi Elias Berkovitz says something else. And this is so powerful, I'm going to read it inside. He says, there's another dimension here which is just so, so powerful and really it, it, it has a message for our everyday life. He said, there's another aspect of Kiddush Hashem that should not be overlooked as we consider the human behavior in the ghettos and the death camp. The Talmud introduces the story of Rabbi Akiva's martyrdom with the words, the hour when they took Rabbi Akiva to his death was the time for the recitation of the Shema. In our opinion, these laconic words hide the true greatness of Rabbi Akiva's deeds. Why? We usually imagine an act of Kiddush Hashem as a stirring drama of the soul as it reacts to an extraordinary situation. This is how the Jews, Jewish martyrs through the ages gave their lives and breathed their last, their last with the words of the Shema on their lips. It is an affirmation and acceptance of the kingdom of heaven. 
brought about by the extraordinary nature of the challenge, specific acceptance meeting a specific hour. Right? When you th- as I've been saying, extraordinary circumstances in a person acting in an extraordinary way, willing to accept the yoke of heaven in the most ex- extraordinary way, the person who's willing to do c- extreme things in an extraordinary circumstance, that's Kiddush Hashem! Sanctifying God's name, but says Rabbi Berkowitz, not so. There's another dimension. Not so in the case of Rabbi Akiva. I mean, listen to the words he picks up, up on. It was the hour of the daily recitation of the Shema. It was the moment when one was supposed to accept the king, yoke of kingdom. It was the time when across Kal Yisrael that day in every shul, everyone was putting their hands to their eyes and saying Shema Yisrael. Rabbi Akiva was not doing something extraordinary in extraordinary circumstances. Simply, Rabbi Kiva was doing what he had been doing every day of his life. It was, one might say, routine. The extraordinary situation invested the routine with extraordinary meaning and dignity. But Rabbi Akiva was not responding to the situation. He totally ignored it. The Roman soldiers came to fetch him. They abused his body. It happened to be the time of the day when the Jew recites Shema. Let the Romans do to him whatever they please. Rabbi Akiva cannot be concerned with it. He had more important things to, to which to turn his attention. It was the time for saying Shema. What did it matter what the Romans did to him? He went about his business of living the daily life of a Jew, continuing, continuing with the routine of the, living the, of the Jewish existence and ignoring the world that is bent on crushing the Jew in one of the marks of, is one of the marks of Kiddush Hashem. He says, it wasn't that he was responding to extraordinary circumstances, Romans shackle, putting him in shackles and dragging him out. He was saying Shema because that's what you're supposed to do at this time of day. He went about his business of living the daily life of a Jew, continuing with the routine, continuing with the routine of Jewish existence and ignoring the world that is bent on crushing the Jew is one of the marks of Kiddush Hashem. Often, often, it is practiced long before the hour of radical abandonment arrives. Kiddush Hashem, in this sense, is not one final heroic act of affirmation. It may be a form of behavior in daily. It may be a form of behavior in daily conduct. Numberless are the instances which show how widely this form of Kiddush Hashem was extant in the ghettos and in the death camps. Ringelbaum, the historian of the Warsaw Ghetto, has the following two entries in his journal: "I marvel at the pious Jew." who sanctify themselves by wearing beards and the traditional frock coats. They are subject to physical abuse. An elderly Jew passed the guards on Tuarda Street and did not, for reasons of piety, take off his hat and salute, the, although the Jewish guards warned him. So they tortured him for a long hour. An hour later, he acted the same way. They can go to hell, were his words. Now these Jews did not act this way in fulfillment of any religious duties. From the point of religious law, it is quite permissible for, him to shave, for them to shave their beards to change their traditional garb. Nor was there for them the least religious obligation not to remove their hats as they were passing the German guards. Yet they refused. And perhaps one should not use that word. They continued in their Jewish routine, living their life and ignoring the world around them. They can go to hell is a magnificent expression of of the indifference to what others are, are or do. One goes on being a Jew in one's wanton everyday life. This, too, is a Kiddush Hashem. What Rabbi Berkovitz is telling us is that there is dying of Kiddush Hashem. Perhaps it's fighting back. There's dying of Kiddush Hashem. Perhaps it's in an extraordinary moment doing extraordinary heroic things. But there's also living of Kiddush Hashem. 
is that living the routine, doing what we're supposed to do, despite everything around us, he said, they can go to hell. I don't care what they do to my body. I am doing what I do every single day of my life. It's the time to say Shema, and therefore I'm going to put my hand to my eyes and say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Adir Levon, Adir Torah. I think one of the most poignant and powerful things that emerges from this kino of the ten martyrs is ten people who are willing to say, we have a Hashulchan Aruch, we have a Halach, we have a way of life. And despite what the world wants to do to us, we are going to go on. We're going to redouble our efforts and just do living the ordinary, keeping the halacha, learning Torah, davening, and that is perhaps one of the most magnificent expressions of Kiddush Hashem. Kiddush 21, 248.